Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jimmy L. It's me, Lantesta, and this is our first episode for May 2016. It's also the conclusion of our History of Splash Mountain episode. In order to do that, we need to bring back one historian, Mr. James L. Jim, how's it going? I don't know about historian. Probably guy who tells stories that should really end faster than they do. Guy who tells stories. Let's go with that. Hey, Jim, real quick, before we get started on the end of Splash Mountain, I want to get your input on a news item coming out of France through the Netherlands. I don't know if you saw this, but you know what I'm talking about? A Dutch TV station reported that Disneyland Paris has upgraded its infrastructure so that an RFID card now can be used for charging, for FastPass Plus, and for admittance into the park. Not quite yet to open your hotel room door, but that might be next. I will post a link to this in the show notes. But Jim, do you think this is the beginning of FastPass Plus coming to Disneyland Paris? Paris is always problematic because... The park, after the restructuring of 93-94, there's this consortium of banks that are heavily involved in the decision-making at that theme park. And because banks have to operate differently than entertainment companies, I mean, for example, when the Walt Disney Company was trying to persuade Disneyland Paris to build the Ratatouille ride, They hadn't officially announced it to the public, but if you went to the main office of this bank, in the lobby was the model and the concept art for the Ratatouille ride. And the shareholders in that bank had to be informed about what they were considering spending their money on at Disneyland Paris before this project could go forward. And it was only after the board voted on this that Disney could then go, okay, we can now announce this ride and we can begin construction. And so Mm -hmm. if it were me, I would be going to the lobby of this bank right about now (laughs) (laughs) just to see what's on display. Because, you know, if they are getting ready to walk this new system out, if they're they're doing testing of that sort of thing, at some point, Disneyland Paris's financial partners will have to be walking this out to their shareholders to say, look, this is something we're considering and there's a huge amount of investment right. to get all the, the readers and you know that sort of thing in place to take advantage of the system. But here are the financial benefits and yada, yada. I would love to see what they think the financial benefits are because that would give us an idea of what the financial benefits were in, uh, in Walt Disney World. And Len, you were looking for an excuse to go to Paris, right? It's funny. We were actually looking for an excuse to go to Paris. I don't know that this is it. How much of this, though, do you think, Jim, do you think the alternate explanation is that these RFID things are simply the Disneyland Park catching up with a slightly more advanced technology or payment technology culture in Europe. So back in 2011, when Mm -hmm. I was in Disneyland Paris, waiters would come to your table to take payment and they would actually scan your credit card, which was chip enabled back Mm -hmm. then. We're just now getting that in the United States five years later. How much Mm -hmm. of this do you think is just keeping up with the Joneses in Europe and what typical Europeans expect in a theme park? And then how much of it do you think is my metric plus? I think it's it's sort of a weird confluence, probably the Venn diagram of, yeah, this is what people have come to know and love outside of the parks and mm-hmm. have expected this feature to show up. You're coupled with the fact that after the problematic launch of My Disney Experience and Fast Pass Plus stateside, the very thing that the people at Walt Disney World evangelize about is that what this has meant for impulse purchases, whether it's turkey legs or glow-in-the-dark mouse ears, those items that people don't really think about 
as major purchases that then mount up over the course of a five, six, seven day long vacation. Yeah, they, I think the Disneyland Paris Resort, which has always kind of struggled when it comes to meeting its financial goals, would love to have this in place, to have people, you know, wait till they get home, crack open the bill and go, Zuta Lord, I spent that much? You know, it's <laughs> You think uh, Disneyland Paris gets uh, FastPass Plus before Disneyland in Anaheim? I know Bob Chapek. They are in committee after committee meeting on this. And the thing that's making them crazy is that at least when you look at Disney's California Adventure, you have electronics. Everything's in place that late 1999, early 2000 level. It's sort of like those people in New York who every so often will be digging down and found a water pipe that's made out of oak. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's still so much 1955 infrastructure that makes this difficult to do anything of this size, coupled with the fact that Disneyland was built with the notion of we're going to have maybe 20,000 guests a day hmm. back in 55. And yeah, they've since expanded the footprint of the park on days when they have 70,000 people in the, that park. We need to do a complete overhaul of the the electrical, the connectivity, and the work that's being done out back on Star Wars Experience. So much of that is going to be state-of-the-art because they want people to be able to use the force. You know, that's one of the gimmicks of the, the, the land. People are going to walk back there, do this whole 14-acre experience, hmm. and then walk back into the rest of the park that's still 1955. And my understanding is Chapek is going to try to use the fact that we do this state-of-the-art thing and people will love it, and then they will complain about the rest of the park, and that will allow me to go to the board and say, okay, this is how much money I need to bring Disneyland up. But before a fast pass can be in place, you have to have, or a fast pass plus, excuse me. There's so much infrastructure work that has to be done, so much back of the house stuff, and it's just at a time when you're still trying to invent reasons to get people to come back to the Anaheim theme park every six months, and the notion of, and you'll be able to spend your money that much faster. Well, the other thing is, is it's a changing culture from the Disneyland folks who are used to showing up the same day, mm -hmm. and many of them don't go on rides. Many of them go for the atmosphere to grab something to eat to socialize. Yep. But if it was one of those things where a local had to make a fast pass reservation 30 days ago to yep. stop by one day and hit Haunted Mansion holiday, mm -hmm. that's not going to go over well. And that's a huge psychological change for a lot of people too. Right? No, and, and let's remember that this is also the park that's about to see surge pricing happen. And, well, if you want to save a few bucks, you go on Thursday. Yeah. yeah, there's a cultural shift coming, and for a lot of folks, it, it's going to be kind of a rude awakening, but a lot of this is, is basically Disney trying to deal with the heroin monkey that's on its back that are the annual pass holders. Right. A lot of these decisions that are being made really irk the annual pass holders, and it's like, nothing personal, we love your money, but <laughs> we don't like having to take you to a new, into account with a decision process, so we're trying to thin the herd, and... Trust me, folks, there's going to be a price jump in annual pass holders. There's going to be a, a further cutback on privileges and that sort of thing over the next two and three years. So by the time Star Wars Experience opens, they're going to have lots fewer annual pass holders to worry about. So I've heard, too, that the price increases are just going to be staggering. We'll see what happens. That's right. I, uh, I don't envy Disney, though, because if you look at it on sort of the left side, they've got a cultural change to the California pass holders who have known and loved Disneyland for 60 years. Mm -hmm. On the right, 
uh, if you're looking at it from a map or, you know, to the east, they've got to in- induce the French to make a cultural change. Yeah. So it's either do we change the French, do we change the Indo-Pass holders? <laughs> well, you know, the last time they changed the French culture, I want to say it involved a guillotine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it may again, Jim. It may again. <laughs> there we go. All right, let's move on. So the last couple of shows we've done, the history of Splash Mountain, talking mm. about that historic flume We've talked about the history of it. With uh, starting back as far as uh, Nuts Berry Farm, we've mm-hmm. talked about the development of of the idea, how they were able to uh, bring in a film like Song of the South, which has never been in theater since the eighties. Mm-hmm. And so let's uh, let's bring up to speed. What uh, what's next in our story, Jim? There's been a lot of complaining lately about the Rivers of Light at Disney's Animal Kingdom having to push back its opening from April 22nd mm-hmm. to right now they're talking, what, the first week of July, thereabouts. They, I guess they're going to potentially, there's a press event later this week that they may give them kind of a taste of the show. Yeah, I'm thinking that the press event is going to involve men in frog suits pushing <laughs> things around. <laughs> that's, that's, I, honest to God, that there, there could be people in the water, Jim. I'm just... That beats the sock puppet version I'd heard. But... Um, <laughs> Shadows. That's a big spotlight with Joe Rody doing little rabbit ears on the tree of life. There you go. But that's, what is it? That's three months. At, at worst, three months. Disneyland Splash Mountain, the opening of that attraction got pushed back for various reasons from November 23rd, 1987 to July 17th, 1988. So that was eight months. Wow. But that doesn't even begin to hit the threshold of pain that that sometimes Disney fans have dealt with. If you remember, Epcot's Test Track, originally supposed to open. (laughs) I actually booked a trip for the the, quote, opening of Test Track. (laughs) So May of 97, Len, okay? Which, you know, and this attraction wouldn't ultimately open until March of 99. All right, so 22 months. And uh, my favorite, though, you're a guest arriving at Disneyland in 1961. You walk through the gate and they hand you a leaflet for the Haunted Mansion, which announces that this brand new attraction will be opening at the park in 1963. That didn't actually open till August of 69. So, six years. We'd been to the moon, we came back, we opened Haunted yeah, Mansion. So, if you're going to bitch about three months, how about the guy who stood outside of Haunted Mansion? like For six years. Six years. <laughs> we went through the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration, the death of Martin Luther King, landing on the moon, then Haunted Mansion opened. Wow. That's actually okay. how history right. books address it these days, Lynn. Yeah, I mean, that was that was my timeline. <laughs> so, so, that puts it in perspective, Jim. This is going to be a couple months delay. So, anyways, you did mention that Song of the South was out in theaters in the 80s. In fact, it was put out in theaters over Thanksgiving of 1986 because Michael Eisner just sitting there like, do I green light this ride? Because it is built around this controversial film, which Disney, by the way, had already said it was taking, was putting in the vault. Mm-hmm. And then they backtracked a year later, but then didn't put it in theaters. And Eisner, before I commit, and at that point, the price tag for Splash Mountain was 25 to $35 million. Before I put that much money into the parks, I want some assurances that I'm not going to have people protesting outside the park. So mm-hmm. they put it out in theaters, a limited release, just for two weeks. And wonders of wonders, no protesters. It ends up in the top 10 nationally for ticket sales. It actually did better in its subsequent 
weeks of release mm-hmm. than it did in its initial week of release. It's one of those rare movies that got stronger box office through word of mouth after it opened than when it initially opened. So those numbers come in. Mm-hmm. Late January of 87, the Walt Disney Company announces that this flume ride is coming to Disneyland. In fact, you would have loved the, the headline in the Los Angeles Times, Len. It said, Disneyland who offer ride with lots of zip and then parenthesis behind that. Adi-doo-da. <laughs> oh, you clever headline writers, you. <laughs> Even then, after having the box office release that it did, Disney <clears throat> took pains to say, look, this attraction is only going to feature the animated characters. Um, Uncle Remus will not be represented in the ride in any way. Other couple of interesting factoids from the initial press release. One was that Splash was supposed to have a theoretical hourly capacity of 3,000 guests per hour. Wow. Which put it actually just below the high bar that had been set by Pirates, which at that point had a 3,200 guests per hour thing. The other thing, Los Angeles Times reports that while no corporate sponsor has yet been lined up for Splash Mountain, the park is reportedly seeking a financial backer for this ride. For the longest time, the Walt Disney Company tried to persuade McDonald's to come on board as the official sponsor of Disneyland's version of Splash Mountain. In fact, I've seen a couple of pieces of concept art where as you walked into Critter Country, there was a sign for Splash Mountain that had Br'er Frog seated on it. And below, quite prominently, was the McDonald's logo. Really? Yep. What was the tie-in between Splash Mountain and McDonald's? What was Disney going for on that? Never mind the underwriting, but there was also an interesting thinking in-house that maybe this is an opportunity to explore the idea of bringing in outside participants to, to handle food. Part of the thing they dangled in front of McDonald's was the notion of what if we took the Hungry Bear restaurant? Mm-hmm. We'll sell McDonald's products there. So people who went in the park, that's where they could get a Big Mac or a filet of fish or a quarter pounder with cheese. A Royale with cheese. <laughs> Again. It's- For our European guests. <laughs> there we go. Now, I know that there are, obviously, given the way Disney theme park fans are, they're, they're purists out there. They're kind of horrified by this idea. But you know what? Walt Disney and Ray Kroc, the founder of uh, the McDonald's fast food chain. I don't think friends is the proper term here, but but they were acquaintances. They, they were actually members of the exact same Red Cross Ambulance Corps, Ambulance Company A, to be specific, at the end of World War One. Really? Yeah. When Walt officially announced that he was building Disneyland back in 54, Ray actually reached out and you know sent him a letter reminding him that, hey, we'd been in France together after the armistice. Then Ray pitched... Walt on the idea of Disneyland making use of the speedy service system, which was the system that Richard and Mac McDonald were using at their roadside restaurant in San Bernardino, California, which allowed them to serve hamburgers and french fries to their customers at lightning speed. And Ray hasn't actually launched the McDonald's franchise yet. That would come a couple years later, right? Yeah, actually, the first McDonald's, which was a franchise, which wound up being built in the middle of the country out in De Plains, Illinois, opened on April 15, 1955. Right, so this is like in the if like 53 when Ray Kroc is pitching this. Yeah, and so what Ray was actually looking to do was the notion of, I installed the system at Disneyland. Disneyland gets to serve food to the thousands of guests they have every day. And I have a showcase for this speedy service system that I'm trying to, to use as the, as the heart of this franchise. Right. 
And Walt kind of, oh, yeah, right, sure. Okay, let me hand you off to our food service guy. But again, Walt's busy getting a whole park up out of the ground. Yeah, I get it. Walt had more pressing concerns than how fast he's going to serve the hamburgers. Okay. And so it just sort of kind of falls to, to the wayside. Oh. In fact, Croc, to his dying day, told the story, basically, that the reason they they didn't take the system at Disneyland is evidently the head of food service at Disneyland wanted him to bump the price of the hamburgers that they'd sell in the park from 10 cents to 15 cents. Mm-hmm. And Ray evidently thought that, well, no, this is gouging people, that it's a 10, you know, we're selling it at the restaurant for 10 cents. If we do it in the park at 15 cents, it's people aren't going to buy it or reflect badly on us. Oh, those were the days, Jim. <laughs> those ideas of too much profit are, are quaint. Yeah. It's adorable. It's adorable. So, I, But I didn't know that about, about Ray Kroc and Walt being in the same yeah. ambulance corps in World War One. That's super interesting. McDonald's becomes his behemoth. And mm-hmm. in the late 70s, early 80s, Ray actually has McDonald's approach Disney and find out, hey, are you guys available to purchase? Because he actually wanted to get into the theme park business. And at one point, Ray had an option on 1,500 acres of land in northern Los Angeles that he wanted to build his own theme park called Western Land on. But the whole notion is, well, why do I spend money on doing that when I can buy Disney? And so they actually approached Disney, and it was just sort of like, we're not for sale, but thank you for asking. In the end, in 86, 87, they couldn't make a deal, Disney and McDonald's. But in 1996, there was the, the May of 1996, there was that... 10-year-long deal that Disney got going with McDonald's. So that's how Countdown to Extinction wound up being sponsored by McDonald's. And to circle back on the Hungry Bear idea, that's how Restaurantosaurus wound up with Chicken McNuggets and McDonald's fries on its menu. But yeah, that's a story for another time. Okay, so they looked at McDonald's as a corporate sponsor for Splash Mm -hmm. Mountain. That obviously didn't happen. So this is the later part of the 80s. Construction gets underway. What happens next? So May of 87, the construction actually gets started. They throw a construction fence up just past the Haunted Mansion. The problem with Splash is you have to do a lot of infrastructure work before you can actually start to go vertical with steel. So, you know, first thing they do is they have to dig this enormous hole, which is going to be the reservoir for the water after every night when the attraction shuts down. Right. Oh, yeah, because it's pumping through gallons. Oh, God, yeah. Is it connected to the rivers of America? Or is it no, not at all. Oh, that explains it. Okay. Yeah, closed system. You know, they had to dig 26 feet below the ground level at Disneyland to create this reservoir. At the same time while they're doing this, they're also building the part of Splash Mountain that people think is connected to the Rivers of America, that 107-foot-long ride-out at the bottom of Chickapin Mm -hmm. Hill. They have to build that dig that out and at the same time then line that with concrete and create a lip so they can have this closed water system. And once those pieces are dug, reinforced with steel and lined with concrete, it's it's now time for Splash Mountain to go vertical. Of course, mm-hmm. while all this digging is going on, Disneyland's horticultural department is trying to save as many of the trees that were planted or moved to Bear Country when, when that new land was, was opened in March of 72. And right. So using cranes, they move over 35 specimen trees. Two of the largest trees that have ever been moved at Disneyland were saved during this phase of the project. People forget that when Splash Mountain was built, they actually moved the railroad. In order to create the space for 
the finale of Splash Mountain. And, and you have to understand that room is one of the largest rooms that's ever been created for an attraction. I mean, the ceiling... This is the, uh, this is the, the showboat scene at the end. Yeah, I mean, the ceiling is 35 feet tall. The zippity, zippity Lady, that's the name of the steamboat, that thing is the largest moving prop that's ever been built for a Disney theme park ride. It's 50 feet long, 30 mm-hmm. feet high, and there are 21 moving animatronic figures on it. And that prop all by itself was so complicated that the Imagineers actually reached out to Bob Gurr, the, the Disney legend who designed the Utopia, the monorail, all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd left the company at that. He'd set his, up his own independent consulting firm, and they brought him back to figure out, well, how do we make this giant thing move? Because, you know, it's, it's, again, it's got to bob up and down in the water and support all right. these figures. And, and Bob, being Bob, you know, found an elegant and, you know, practical way to fix that. I think most people forget that the riverboat actually moves yeah. in addition to the characters on the riverboat. Move. Yeah, but it's an incredibly complicated set. You just float right by and just take it for granted, not understanding that there's all of this stuff supporting and moving the hydraulics that have to be fed into the boat just to make sure that the figures move. And yeah. So we'll, we'll, t- we'll talk about some of the animatronics actually in the ride in a little bit, I, I'm, I'm sure. But it's part of the story, though, is that most of the animatronics in Splash Mountain are so incredibly complicated that they're <laughs> essentially there in that one ride and found nowhere else in Disney property. Am I right? No, that's it exactly. Alice Davis, she's, she's been kind enough to invite me to her home multiple times. She's shared all these stories with me about Disney history. I wish you had been able to go to her house when, when her husband Mark was alive because at 5 o'clock, traffic would stop. It's like wherever you were with visiting with them, it's time for cocktails. And Mark and Alice <laughs> were professional drinkers from like the 40s and the 50s. And uh, so my kind of people. Mark made me a Manhattan one afternoon where I'm under the table. I mean, I, I, <laughs> to this day, I don't know how I got back to my hotel from that trip to the house. There's a receipt for massage you don't remember in your... There we your go. Bed. Alice is the godmother of my daughter, Alice. So, you know, this is a woman I love, someone I respect. And I would never want to say anything derogatory about this 87-year-old woman. But that said... For the past four and five years, she's been telling this story about how the reason the America Sings figures ended up in Splash Mountain is that attraction had gone so far over budget that they didn't have any money to make their own audio animatronic figures. So they stole all of Mark's figures out of his attraction. And this is, I mean, again, I love this woman, but this just isn't true. I mean, you know, we've talked about it in the earlier installments that Baxter, when he was brainstorming this thing, was like, well, we got to get rid of America Sings because George Lucas wants to build new attractions to do that, get those characters out of there, freeze up the space. Mark Davis and Tony Baxter had this really complicated history. Okay. Mark Davis had designed for Walt Disney World Thunder Mesa, which was going to house the ride that he thought was going to top what many people consider his masterpiece, the Pirates of the Caribbean. And Mm. in the end, what Disney opted to do was not build what Mark designed, but rather what Tony had designed, which was Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. Mm. To then have 10 years later, after Mark has left the company, in all of these figures that he and Albertino had designed for America Sing to be jerked out of the theater they were designed for and to go over to Splash, that didn't sit well with Mark and... Alice, being as loyal as she is, I think 
she in defending I, her I husband's it. legacy. You know, this somehow this story got kind of transmuted. It's a big company, Jim. It, lots of people probably hear multiple different reasons for why things That's happen, true. and people fix it on the one that makes them feel the most comfortable. One of the reasons they wanted to get all of those America's Snake mm-hmm. figures out of that building is this is when George Lucas is working with the Imaginators on Star Tours, and they had basically said, George, you've got Tomorrowland, whatever you want to do here. I spent one afternoon with Bruce Gordon where he walked me through the entire history of Carousel to Progress Theater Building and and all of the stuff. Right after Epcot opened, there was this really, really heavy push to put Horizons, the entire attraction that had been designed for Future World, in Disneyland. But same thing. They tried to get – it wasn't a GE the sponsor – yeah. They thought it was this elegant solution because, of course, GE had sponsored the original Carousel of Progress, built Progress Land for the 1964-1965 World's Fair. And GE at that time just didn't bite. And then Lucas looked at the theater ground building and he had the idea of, well, let's retrofit the exterior of the building and make it look like a crash UFO. And so sure. this was, was going to be where the was either PT Quantum or Plecto's Intergalactic Review, but a circus from outer space that had landed and okay. kind of a fun bend on the idea. So building those things is the thing that would have made the America Sings attraction and Matronics available. At the absolute base level of this version of the show, at one point, they were talking about just making it a showcase for industrial robots. In fact, Bruce was once telling me the story that he went to a trade show and watched this industrial robot that held a sword in its hand and was able to balance a spinning top at the end of the sword. And he said, it was the most amazing thing. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be cool to put an oversized version of this inside a theater and sort of have the sword dangled out over the audience? None of that ultimately went forward. And for the longest time, you know, there was this sign outside of the the Carousel of Progress theater around building like we're imagining another attraction and bruce used to joke that he wanted to get up there and put a thing in for parentheses and if you have any ideas please call us <laughs> please please call us it <laughs> okay so back to the fact that you know so many people are upset about them rerouting the railroad yeah, for fine. the star wars experience and putting it closer to the rivers of america and all that and it's like look When they built Splash Mountain, in order to accommodate that final finale scene where people on the train could look down and see the zippity lady bouncing up and down in the water without the people on the boat being able to see up at the train, they had to move the track back 12 feet. Wow. They had to change the whole layout of the train on that side of the park. And the other thing I think people need to understand is that during the period that this was going on, Mm -hmm. Disneyland was finally able to do some preventative maintenance that had been needed for quite some time. They replaced the rails. They worked on all the ties of the railroad. They actually went through each of the trains that gave them some TLC. So in a weird sort of way, yeah, people didn't get to ride the train for a bunch of months, but when they came back, very few people actually noticed that the rail bed had been moved 12 feet to the west. They didn't notice that they got the smoother ride or that they were on safer track. And in a way, that's what's going on right now. It's not just that they are moving it to make room for Star Wars experience. They're actually taking the time to do the maintenance that needs to be done on this over 60-year-old rail system. There's an upside, folks. There we go. All right. Anyway, getting back to Alice's Davis's claim about that the America's Sing Series were grabbed because the attraction, Splash Mountain, got over budget. That part of the story, at least, is true. 
did this thing go over budget? Remember, I talked about at the start top of the show, twenty-five to thirty-five million dollars of original budget. budget. By the mm-hmm. time this thing was done, Disney had spent seventy-five million dollars. Triple, double yeah. or triple, depending on how you look. Yeah, part of that was what happened, or it came as a direct result of what what happened when they began testing the attraction in in late 87 to get it ready for this November 23rd, 1987 opening day. When you say testing, you mean they get it built and then they start running logs through it? Yeah. First they did the sandbags and then they began running. People began volunteering to ride it. And when an attraction is the name Splash, you assume you're going to get wet. Mm-hmm. But people weren't just getting wet. They were getting soaked. I mean, Tony Baxter got to ride this during the early, early test and adjust phase. And he said, I actually had to leave the park. I was soaked. Every piece of clothing I had was was heavy with water. I had to go back to my hotel and change my entire outfit to come back to the park. And wow. this wasn't an option for day guests. No, no one wants to walk around in the heat. What, like yeah. that? It was like, well, what did we do wrong? And so, well, as it turns out, there were two things. One was that the original exterior shell of the flume logs, they had deliberately designed them to look as if beavers had sort of chewed the trees and created the logs. But mm-hmm. there was sort of the scoop shape at the front. Mm-hmm. So when you came down the trough, when you dropped to the bottom of that five-and-a-half-story flume and hit that at, at 45 miles an hour, the scoop shape on the front of the, the thing would hit the walls of the ride-out tunnel, and the water would just slam back into the ride vehicle. And so you suddenly had six inches of water in the car with you. Oh. And then it was like, okay, so obviously we need to change the front of these vehicles, remove that scoop shape. And then it was a question of, we are moving so fast. So we'd hit the bottom at 45 miles an hour. It's just sort of like... It's that impact that's creating the, this water. Yeah, I don't care how streamlined your vehicle is. You hit water at 45 miles an hour, there's yep. going to be waves. I mean, there's there's no way around it. What they figure out is that if they hand it off to the engineers and the engineers come back and say, look, you have your drop set at 47 degrees. If you move it back to 45 degrees, the vehicle will move that much slower. You'll have less of an impact at the bottom. And if you couple that with changing the front of the log, you'll have considerably less water. Really? Two degrees? So, yeah, two degrees did the deal. But the problem is that you now have to go to your manufacturer and have them rush make brand new fiberglass shells for the outside. Right. Remember, one of the gimmicks of Splash Mountain, because they didn't want to have to deal with props that would rot in the water, the humidity. But in order to change an attraction that you've deliberately built entirely out of concrete so you won't have rotten wood, that involves jackhammers. That's why Splash Mountain's opening date slid from November of 1988 to January of 89, and then eventually, uh, we're just not going to make it. So, okay, push it back. It's Now, let's just tie it to Disneyland's birthday. It becomes July 17th. When you make these sort of adjustments, because of the vehicle weighs less, it's moving slower, you suddenly wind up with a far lower ride capacity. Uh, Splash Mountain actually went from its original projected 3,000 guests an hour to 2,400 guests an hour. So down by a quarter. Yeah. Because it's moving slower. Yeah. So anyway, soft opening by early July. You know, all the grumbling that it, prior to this, people who got off the ride just loved it. Felt it was really worth the wait. And so... On opening day, the line to get on Splash Mountain 
actually stretched from Critter Country all the way back to where people got on board the Mark Twain. Wow. So almost all the way across that side of Rivers of America. That just suggested, okay, we've got a huge success on our hands. So what happens next? And Michael Eisner offered a clue at the, at the dedication ceremony. He said to the assembled press that with the opening of Splash Mountain, I believe Disneyland is now at least a two-day trip, and the time has come for a second gate. Wow. So, yes, July of 1989, here's Michael Eisner talking about what are we going to do with that parking lot? And that's a story we'll get to in the next installment of our Chronological Disneyland series. Wow, that's fantastic. All right, great story, Jim. So people can go on to Splash Mountain and write it today. And as you're going on it, you can think of this history. There you go. And just keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle, folks. (laughs) At all times. All right, you've been listening to the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced, fabulously, I might add, by Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care, guys.